There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if they could become something more and uh, could work together uh, when we needed them to, to fight the battles that we never could. Some weeks ago, I believe it's been over a month now actually, I did a rumination on a film called Zootopia. The request was from one of my biggest and longest standing patrons, and someone who is a big supporter of mine, and so I honored his otherwise unusual request, which was, pick something of my own, out of everything, and ruminate on that. Zootopia was, was my first pick for that, but Avengers was my second. There is a lot to say about this film. I have five pages of notes to go through, and I haven't even looked at them yet because I'm going off of memory right now. I just finished watching the movie a few seconds ago. This is a fantastic film. I'm not sure I would call it my favorite film of all time, but it is easily in the top 30, you know, my own personal art category, uh, and above and beyond that. The There are plot holes. Um, there are some logical issues which have to be explained away and there's some weird cadences in the script but overall the Avengers is when everything comes together pretty much perfectly uh, I will be looking at next month a film called Jurassic Park which is an awesome film it's related to this one because Jurassic Park was not one of those lucky few films where things just kinda happened to work out Everything was in place for a fantastic film, and we got Jurassic Park. And that's what The Avengers is. We had people who were talented and skilled and at the top of their game, who were motivated and driven and had a massive bankroll behind them. They had time, they had resources, and they had the political clout to do the stories and styles of presentation they wanted to do. The Avengers was a creative endeavor that happened to be a financial juggernaut. It is to this day the fifth best-selling film Ever. Or at least as recently as I checked. This is a film where everything clicked. So I'm not actually going to talk a whole lot about the behind-the-scenes aspect because, frankly, I don't think there's really that much to talk about. If you've been following the series thus far, from Iron Man 1 up to Avengers, you know pretty much the behind-the-scenes thing. This was the culmination. It was also designed to kind of be a launching point for where the franchise would go next. And that's really a whole other bag of just... that I don't really want to talk about right now. And indeed, I will not be talking about for the course of this because I'm con concluding my look at the MCU with the Avengers. So, I do want to mention two things, though. First of all, they were working on the marketing for Avengers for a full two years. For two years, they were promoting the idea that they were building up to Avengers. And normally, I'm against that kind of advanced marketing, you know, especially when it comes to video games. Don't tell me about a video game until it's out. But this really is a separate situation. Because what was happening here was not Avengers is coming out in two years. It's here's all these films that are coming out now. They are building up to Avengers. And thus, I'm more okay with that because they were promoting Avengers by promoting everything else. 
if you were to map out a diagram of the films, there's some that lead naturally into others, but all of the initial films lead directly into Avengers, both thematically and literally in terms of their stories and the arcs and the characters. They also, one of the things they did, which I believe was smart, and Marvel has been hit or miss about this type of marketing over the last 10 years, is they have kind of had their finger on the pulse of geekdom. Uh, one of the biggest avenues they kept using to promote the Avengers initiative, the build-up to the Avengers film, was Comic-Con. Now, Comic-Con's a, a little more mainline, streamlined, whatever you want to call that, than some other avenues. But that's just an example of where they were going with this. No bus ads here. Although they might have been bus ads. I'm not sure. I don't remember there being any. But it was basically impossible to avoid the Avengers marketing juggernaut. Now, considering how wildly this film succeeded and how amazing it was both critically and financially, it is thus funny to consider the situation of Edward Norton. Now, Edward Norton was originally approached to, to be in this, and then, and then Edward Norton is not in this and was replaced by Mark Ruffalo. Now, the reason I do that that way is because to this very day, we don't actually know the 100% truth of what actually happened. If you've been paying attention, I feel like I've said this a lot lately. <laughs> because there's just sometimes where we don't actually know the truth. People either state things that sound flagrantly wrong, or like lies, or nobody really says anything of substance about the matter. So, all I can really say definitively about Edward Norton was that there was some kind of drama, and then we got Mark Ruffalo instead. I'm also going to say something that's going to oust me a little bit. I shouldn't say oust. There will be people who don't like the fact that I'm saying this. I like Mark Ruffalo as Banner better than I like Edward Norton as Banner. My opinion. Although I do wish we could get a proper Hulk movie, but whatever, Thor Ragnarok will have to do for now. I don't have much else to say about the behind-the-scenes thing, so let's just dive into the film itself. I'd also like to note that I'm skipping over a huge number of small details that are in this film. Oh, actually, I do want to mention one other thing, and that's Joss Whedon. Uh, I was kind of practicing the speech in the car uh, a bit ago while I was doing some errands. No joke. Because I'm going to have angry people descending upon me with gnashing teeth for what I'm about to say. I'm not a fan of Joss Whedon. I'm not against him. You know, it's not like I see Joss Whedon and I go, oh, he's terrible. But I don't like his style, and I don't like his approach, and I don't like his just about anything. I could name the number of things that Joss Whedon has done that I liked on one hand. Well, two hands. Well, no, it's still one hand. Avengers. You know, basically his MCU work is what I like of Joss Whedon's. Now, he does have a nice sense of comedic timing. He has a wonderful sense of, for lack of a better way to put it, uh, appreciation for geekdom. This is a man who is a geek, who is a self-affirmed and unapologetic geek. He, fl he flat out states, yes, I love comics, yes, I love video games, Less I yes, I love vampires, yes, I love science fiction. And he, was, he wasn't the first major film person to do that, but he was among the first. And I think that's one of the reasons why he got the reputation he did amongst Hollywood in general, both in television and in film, I should clarify, you know, in, in uh, visual media in general. It kind of got him a lot of attention, and well-deserved, because most people, even to this day, still have the problem with saying, oh yeah, I'm a geek. It's only in more recent years, in like the last three or four years, that it's become more acceptable socially, and more importantly, politically, within the interesting political environment that Hollywood is, to be openly 
a geek. Whedon was like, yeah, no, no, I love, I love it, it's cool. And I do like that about him. But I bring this up because I have to give the man tremendous props for what he did in this film. And I'll tell you exactly what he did. He threw himself into it. I wasn't able to find the exact interview. I really was hoping to quote him word for word, so please forgive me. But there's an interview that I remember seeing of him where he mentioned that this was his dream project. Like, if you asked him 10 years ago, what do you want to work on? He's like, man, I want to do an Avengers film. And he's actually doing it. He threw himself into this film. He poured his heart, his soul, and every ounce of knowledge and understanding and skill and, and experience that he had gained over the many years in order to try and craft the best film that he possibly could. And I do think the results show. So why the Chitari? Well, originally it was actually supposed to be the Skrull. However, for various reasons, some of which I'll be covering as we go through this rumination, it was decided that the Chitari were simply not acceptable for what is effectively an intro low-level threat to for the Avengers to fight. You don't bring out the scroll for, like, the initial battle. Once again, we see that understanding of the idea that you don't bring out the big-name villain for the first thing. I mean, Loki? Come on. We also quickly see a couple of things, and they establish things very quickly. Bam, bam, bam. Uh, first of all, there's early mentions of Phase 2. In fact, it's in the second scene of the entire film. We also see Maria Hill, who was introduced for the first time into the MCU. Unfortunately, we don't really see a lot of her in the MCU, but I do like her presentation. What we see about her, and what is established about her very quickly, is that she is competent and professional. I'll talk more about her in a minute. Then we see Selvig. Now... <laughs> I actually told you I'd talk about Selvig here rather than back in Thor. For those of you, <laughs> the Thor film, the Thor rumination hasn't actually gone live for me yet, so I don't know how many of you descended upon the comments to point out that I didn't talk about the mid-credits or the end-credits scene. But yes, Thor, uh, excuse me, Thor, Loki was manipulating Selvig to have him work with the cube, and thus, with that manipulation, able to directly open a portal to him out in the sanctuary so he could come through and doom can happen. I only point that out here, though, because there's something... Like, I don't really have much else to say about that, other than that's just another nice little piece of construction for the sequence of events. But I do like one tiny little bit... I, I literally never caught this before. As Selvig is... You know, as the, the thing's starting to go up, Selvig mutters under his breath, Not yet! And I found myself going... Now, that's probably in an Okia setting. Saying. It's probably him just being like, No, no. But why the phrase, Not yet? Like, you know, if, if, if everything's going out of control, you'd think you'd be like being like, no, or, oh gosh, or something's wrong, or, you know, anything else other than not yet. I think that's just this tiny little whisper of him, because you notice he's, he's madly working the controls when the portal goes through. It's also worth noting that the scepter does not make portal work happen. That's the mind stone, not the space stone. And... The Chitari themselves have no presented technology of that kind of portal-making means. Otherwise, they wouldn't need the Tesseract in order to make the portal at the end of the film. So what I'm saying here is that I'm thinking Loki or Loki through the axis of the others. Because we do know the scepters with the Mind Stone can travel a significant distance. Loki communicates with the other later via merely the scepter, right? I think Loki was actually directly basically opening the gateway, like despite what, despite what Barton says, I think Loki was opening the gateway on our end through Selvig. And that's why I wanted to mention this here. 
I've actually had that theory for a while, but that little not yet, that, that just solidifies it for me. <clears throat> so we have a very brief introduction to Hawkeye, who I'm going to be referring to as Barton for the rest of the thing. I don't think they ever even call him Hawkeye in this film. I could be wrong. Let me just say that I love this presentation of Hawkeye. He comes across as really good. He's not quite Batman level, but he's leaning in that direction, the more down-to-earth, uh, very skilled, competent, uh, elite soldier type thing, you know, the elite agent kind of perspective. Um, more soldier than agent, because Romanoff kind of covers the agent side of things. I do like his presentation, and he does basically have a superpower. His uh, uh, situational awareness is what I want to call it. It's phenomenal. I know you all know the scene where he shoots an arrow behind his head and it hits some guy who's going by at got like 40 miles an hour in the air and a small target. That's a hard shot to hit. And the fact that he does... There's several moments where he does his shots which are just absolutely brilliant. I'm sorry, that's basically a superpower. <clears throat> so, why is the portal so unstable once it goes in? It's, just, it's the only time we see a portal have that kind of backlash. Now, there's a couple of theories I've heard cycled around. By the way, have I mentioned I've talked about this film with my friends a lot? I'll be repeating a lot of things from my perspective that you'll be hearing for the first time. So I hope you'll forgive me if I kind of sound rote about some of these concepts and opinions. Like I said, I've talked about this film a lot. <clears throat> what do you think caused the feedback of the portal? The most common theories I hear is that, remember, Loki was kind of setting it up, so it's basically an imperfect portal. Just a quick, quick, dirty, okay, I'm here. Or, maybe it's because of the distance. See, that one doesn't quite follow through for me, because the other one also goes the same distance, the Chitauri invasion fleet. So, I mean, you could argue the backlash there just dissipated into the atmosphere, whereas this one had nowhere to go. Maybe that's the specific circumstances of the dome. There's a lot of answers here. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. So... Having This is actually really interesting. I had no comprehension of this when I first saw The Avengers. By the way, I saw The Avengers several times in theaters. Hands up if you guys saw Avengers multiple times in the theaters. No shame. Um, I had no understanding of this, because if you remember, I hadn't seen Thor when I first saw Avengers. So I just see Tom Hiddleston as Loki, and I'm like, okay, he looks terrifying. Having watched Thor since then, and then Avengers since then, and having watched Thor like just a few days ago, and then having seen Avengers now, he looks and acts completely differently. Now, I've always kind of had a theory about this, and I'm going to build up to that theory over time. I think the conclusion of that will be a bit later, but all I want to do is bring your attention to the fact that he is presented differently, he acts differently, his eyes are blue. There's like this little blue effect they put in his eyes. <sighs> Anyways, <clears throat> so, the scepter is, of course, the Mind Stone. Why the blasts? Now, twice in this film, people who probably shouldn't know the answer to this state that the scepter is being powered by the Tesseract. Now, there is some vague evidence for that, but it's basically superficial evidence. Considering we know the Mind Stone is in that scepter, I, it's probably the one and only thing about this that makes me go, wait a second, why is the Mind Stone shooting blasts? Like, the Mind Control? Makes perfect sense. The communication along distance? Makes perfect sense. The ability to affect other people and basically slant and tilt them, manipulate them in their emotions? Makes perfect sense. Energy blasts. Um, uh, uh, hey, look over there. <clears throat> so, I'm just going to make my point now. 
Loki gives this mad rant about freedom, about how you yearn to be free from tr life's great lie of freedom. Um, <clears throat> that doesn't sound a lot like the Loki I saw back in Thor. Loki was certainly emotionally unbalanced and destabilized. And as I pointed out, Hiddleston himself portrayed him in a way that was clearly hoo-hoo. But what I'm hearing is Thanos' words in Loki's mouth, if that makes any sense. I have had the theory pretty much since after I watched Thor and then watched this for, at that point, like the fifth time, that this Loki, while not fully being mind-controlled by Thanos is effectively being influenced by him. I'll give more evidence to this a little bit later, but... Well, I screw it, let's talk about it now. I think, given what we see the Mind Stone can do, and what the presence of the Scepter can do to people, we see what this, what this does to the Avengers themselves and everyone in that room, I think it's not really that much of a stretch to say that the Scepter or Thanos or both are deliberately influencing Loki. Not to the point of total mind control. Maybe... That is possible. It's possible he's completely mind-controlled this whole time, which makes Thor 2 and Thor 3 even more interesting, in hindsight. But instead, what I see is... I see the Loki who was already emotionally unstable, who was already dis disranged and just kind of slanted a little bit, who is being slanted a little bit more, and a little bit more, as you can see over here, until it gets to the point where the person we're seeing is basically a caricature of himself. Now, there's still some layers and shadings there, and occasionally you can almost see Loki peek out amongst the darkness. But for the most part, I, I personally have the opinion that what we're seeing in this film isn't really Loki. This is Loki under the influence, to put it under such terminology. So there's dozens of tiny little moments in the first, in the cold open. Um, uh, what, I can't read my own notes here. <laughs> uh... Oh yeah, Coulson. I love Coulson. I've loved Coulson this whole time. Uh, you know, his comments about, leave it, leave it, you know, all the people trying to, to, to grab the equipment because he cares more about the people than the equipment. Um, the idea of Hill doing the reverse drive shooting, in other words, trying to accomplish the objective at any cost. The pilot who stayed for fury and probably died as a consequence of doing so. What we see are tiny little moments that help to establish, for lack of a better term, the cred. This is very quick and very efficient directing because it showcases just how much of a significant force S.H.I.E.L.D. is. And a lot of the first part of the film will establish the resources and reach and scope of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, it, just on the off chance that you hadn't seen the previous films. And then, you know, we are now at war. What's funny is I could see several different other ways and, and moments within the series, especially in the future, which could have been called Declarations of War. But no, this, this right here is the Declaration of War. I find something about that funny. What I really love, though, is this film, in many ways, is structured like a long television show, but with proper scope and scale to it. So, in other words, I don't actually mean that as a bad thing. I just mean the narrative structure of it, it feels like a television bit. Because after, you know, after a war, what do we do, sir? And then, you know, dun, dun, Avengers logo shows up. Shows up, excuse me. That would be the moment where it's like the initial television break. It's called the cold open. And, or the teaser, if you prefer. And then it cuts away to, you know, uh, uh, here's the intro crawl, and here's the cre here's the, the uh, not credits, commercial. There we go. Although credits are there, too. You know, all that fun stuff. It just kind of struck me as I was going through it. But this is an 11-minute and 30-second cold open, so that's pretty damn impressive. So, a lot of visual storytelling in this whole film. 
I couldn't possibly detail it all unless I just sat here and was like, okay, in this scene there's this, in this scene there's this, in this scene there's this. It's all over the place. Uh, one of the things I like is the gunrunners, the, the Russian gunrunners, who are being presented uh, as interrogating Agent Romanov. And they're like, yes, yes. And what we see is, it, once again, all of these scenes do a wonderful thing to establish these characters very quickly and very efficiently. What we see is that she is excellent at reverse interrogation. Reverse interrogation is something that's very, very hard to do properly and very risky and very dangerous. Reverse interrogation is when you are being interrogated in a manner that you are basically guiding to interrogate the person interrogating you. Um, that is a real-life technique. It is damned difficult and, like I said, very, very dangerous. She's also really, really good at it. Um, I also like Coulson's style. <laughs> Colson, so Romanoff, Colson, and Barton, and Fury, and, and Hill are, are the S.H.I.E.L.D. people we really meet. Each one of them has their own different approach to things. And I kind of like the little shading and perspectives we have. Romanoff is the person who will get you to admit or do or say what, you, what she wants you to without you really realizing it until she's done. Colson is the person who walks up and says, Hi, um, so I just planted a bomb on your chest. It's going to go off in five seconds unless you tell me what I want to know. And then he'll sit there with a pleasant look on his face and kind of smile as he hums. <laughs> Coulson is incredibly blunt and, for the most part, utterly unflappable. That's part of his character. He, he's been totally fine with Thor, with the Destroyer, with Iron Man, and, of course, with Whiplash. So he just looks at this like, another day in the office. Yep, yep. So I love his thing. Excuse me. Yep, <clears throat> here's your address. I've got a plane within eight miles. If you try to run, you'll be dead before you hit the balcony. Could you please put it on the phone? Thank you. <laughs> it's just so Coulson. I love it. Now, what's funny, though, is this helps to show immediate contrast to draw the audience's attention to her. Coulson's down with this. He's used to dealing with this kind of scope and scale. She is not. She is a spy and an agent. Remember, I made that distinction earlier. She is someone who is used to dealing with people. It's funny, we're talking about Russian gun smugglers and tank runners, and that is small scale compared to the scope of this film, which itself is funny because, as I'll discuss throughout the course of this rumination, this film itself is small scale, and very deliberately and on purpose, and that's a good thing. But I love this because that's basically going to be the beginning of her character arc. Whereas Coulson's already got this, she is going to start developing this she doesn't got this. This is beyond her. This is stuff that's out of her reach and out of her scope. Three, two Russian thugs and a corrupt Russian general? Oh, yeah, she's got that. Um, an Asgardian who has a magic scepter that can mind control people? That is so far out of her radar that she doesn't even have the ability to sense it, right? That's just... Plung. So... I, there's an early point that's made about how the one thing that Widow doesn't really like is a situation she can't control. Note how the, the movie, I almost said the episode, note how the movie contrasts this by showing a situation where she was completely in control. She was in no particular danger of the two Russian thugs and the corrupt Russian general. She was just, yeah, no, I got this. I keep saying Russian. I shouldn't actually say that. I think they're Russian, because I feel like I saw that on the cast list, but I don't actually know if that's what it was intended or not. Anyways, you know, she was completely in control. No real threat. You know, Coulson was just like, <laughs> and she's just like, yep, yep, nope, I got this. And then she goes to confront Banner. Pay attention to her body language. 
pay attention to her voice. She's terrified. We see in her, and this is so logical, we see in her someone who is used to being completely in control of every situation she's in, on top of every situation she's presented with, because she knows people. She knows how to manipulate people. She, she knows how to outmaneuver people. She knows, she's not very adaptive like some other people are. Instead, she's the kind of person who will walk into a room having already prepared for walking into that room so that she'll be fine. But with Banner, what can you do to the Hulk? Right? And it also kind of helps to highlight that she isn't stupid. She both understands respect and fears the power of the Hulk, as she should, as any sane person would. So the way she acts around Banner is marvelous. And I want to just take a moment to say huge props to Mark Ruffalo. He manages to play someone who is strangely mellow, while at the same time being completely taut. Like there's this wire, and it's just shaking because of how tense it is. But it's like a, it's like a casual tension. Because I'm not... I know there's no literal wire between my hands, but just pretend with me, will you? There's no... I'm not applying additional things. I'm not trying to snap it. It's just being held taut there. So it's in control but just barely, but it's still tense, but still somehow relaxed, because it's not going to go, you know, I'm not going to let it slack, and I'm not going to let it snap. We're just holding it right there at that edge of tension. And he does a wonderful job of portraying that, especially his body movements. Ruffalo's body acting, his, his, his language in his motion is fantastic. So, so she's perfectly tense. We also see a weird form of exposition. Now, I've talked about exposition and its various forms many times on my show. Here we get a weird form of exposition in the fact that he flat out shouts, Stop yelling! You know, he flat out yells at her. And then he pulls back and says, I'm sorry, that was mean. I just wanted to see what you'd do. Now, first of all, that means a couple of interesting things. First of all, as he points out, he was curious what she'd do. Because he didn't really understand the kind of person that she was at that point in time. Seeing the gun and the tension, he relaxes completely. He actually gets a soothing, calm voice. And it's funny because now he is the one trying to calm her down, whereas earlier she was the one trying to calm him down. It also exposits to us that he is in control of his Hulk form. Because that, you know, earlier on in his career, that would have triggered him. Right? But now he's, he's got it. He's got a handle on it. And we'll discuss that as we go throughout this film. So he's looking at us like, yep, nope, I got this. But he also sees in the fear in her eyes, the terror in her eyes, he understands that this is not just some random person who has been sent in. This is someone with knowledge and understanding. This is someone who legitimately is absolutely horrified by him. Huh. Her face says everything. And you notice, even as she's, he's, he's trying to reach out to her, it takes her a few seconds to breathe. Watch her. She's just... And then you can, like, see the inhale, and then, she's, then she takes a moment to, yeah, no, we're cool. And, the, like, the 50 people surrounding the, the shed bow out. I also, of course, love that the way that they got Banner out into the open is because of the fact that, you know, appealed to his, uh, his sense of ethics, his sense of morality. Hey, yo. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over the council scene. I have something else to talk about that really quick. Uh, I want to say really quick, though, I know this is going to sound weird, but I feel like Fury, Nick Fury, is it, the MCU Nick Fury, is an idealist who lives in the real world. 
Someone who aspires to something, to, to greater, to better, but understands the pragmatic reality of everyday life. And I get that a lot in this film. In almost every scene, probably the biggest scene is when the council's like, we need to nuke the place. And he says, no! <laughs> if my team loses control, yeah, sure, we'll consider that. But right now, that's just stupid. And of course, let's just say that every time he has to go face the council, the way he deals with them kind of gets that across. These are the people I have to put up with because that's life. Kind of an idea. And of course, he's more than willing to manipulate people, even if he's doing so for a so-called good cause. So once again, we have quick and dirty exposition with Captain America. As Rogers is like, punch, 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 quick flashback, and then he punches the bag, and he grabs another one. A thing this movie does a lot, and I think this is just Whedon style, is he'll take something that's a joke to use as something serious later. Probably the best example, that's the cards. And uh, I'll talk more about that when we get there. I want to talk about transitions really quick. I don't know if this is down to the editing team or the directing team or what, but the transitions in this film are phenomenal. It's in every scene, really, but I'm just going to cover a couple here right at the beginning so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. So, uh, you know, okay, we, we need to call in. All right, uh, yes, come on, Romanoff. All right, I, uh, I need you to go get the big guy. And she says, uh, Stark is blah, blah. No, 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 I got Stark. You got the big guy. Oh, cut to Banner. Banner's just like, oh, my gosh, you know, and then that whole scene happens. And then Banner makes that interesting little comment, it's just us, right? <laughs> kind of the jokingly sardonic, yeah, just between you and me with the dozens of soldiers around here. Which then cuts to Fury talking to the council and the realities of what he has to put up with, with the people, you know, just us. You kind of see how that segues in. And then, of course, he tells the, the council, no, a war is won by soldiers. Cut immediately to Captain America, who finally makes his comment at the end of his scene, you should have left it in the ocean, cut to Stark in the ocean, setting up the pure energy source of Stark Tower based on the arc reactor, which itself was designed based on concepts reverse engineered from the Tesseract. So you can see how there's this sort of connecting thread across scenes. He does this in almost every scene transition of the film. Almost all of them. It's really good stuff. I shouldn't say he, they. So Stark Tower, it is really... Weird to see for a moment how far Stark's tech has come. Do you remember Iron Man 1? Because I do. I just saw it last week. Iron Man 1, there was a scene uh, where he's getting out of the suit for the first time. Now, I know that's a bit of a stark contrast, severe contrast. But bear with me for a moment, because he's like, ah, and he can't quite get out of it, and he's trying to peel the pieces off. God, why isn't this thing coming off? In this film... Right at the beginning, he casually saunters along the way as this automated platform pulls the pieces off of him without him losing stride. Now, if that doesn't sound depressive, I want you to think about how insane it would be to try and have a system that would keep up with whatever tempo you're keeping, because a human being does not walk at a regular speed, and be able to pull pieces off without pinching or scarring or ripping or anything like that. And he just, yep. It's really, it, it showcases just how far he's gone and how much he's dumped more and more time and effort and money into continuing to advance his tech, which will be a continuing theme up to and including the film that, from your perspective, came out today. The nanotech suit? I've, I saw that in the trailers. <sighs> so, Stark Tower, clean, reliable energy. And um, there's this one little detail, I know, there's a lot of little details, but there's this great deal where she says, Phil! 
Now, that's great for two reasons. One, it sets up a character arc, which we'll talk about later. But other, the other thing is it means that Stark Industries, the company, has retained close ties to S.H.I.E.L.D. Because of course it has! That makes so much sense, it would be idiotic if they didn't. So I just kind of like that subtle little implication that she and that Miss Potts and uh, Coulson have been in such close contact that she's on a first name basis with him and knows that he's dating some uh, uh, cellist who's in his in Portland. You know, lovely little stuff. I also love that Stark pays attention at all times. His attention to detail and his, his perceptive abilities are actually through the roof. That's been true in every presentation he's been in. It's funny, though, and I do kind of like it because he comes across, across as this irreverent, whimsical person who's you know just in this drunken haze and not paying attention to anything around him, when in fact he is paying attention to everything around him. I can give you one example of this really quick. He mentions, uh, you know, he hears them walking off and they're, they're talking about cellist. He's paying attention to that. Next time he is with Coulson, which is several, several, several scenes later, he's like, so I'm just saying, I'll get you a, I'll get you a flight, get you a little vacation time, I'll pay, you head out to Portland. They don't have to, and I love this because it treats us like we're smart. I, I do like a lot of the script design in this, so, so props to Whedon on that one and the various script doctors who worked on this. Props to that because there's a lot of subtlety and nuance in this. We get the impression both that Stark was paying attention and that he cares enough to try and build a personal rapport with Coulson. I like that, and I like every aspect of that. Moving on. So then we have the vintage cards. <laughs> Perfect example of turning a joke into something serious, because we see the vintage cards three times. Well, four, actually. Um, the first time is, is, is when it's mentioned, you know, Romanoff says, did he ask you to sign his cards yet? No. Cards? Yeah, he's got vintage cards. He's very proud of them. Skipping ahead a little bit, several, several scenes later, there's a bit where Cap is standing there and Coulson's standing there and Coulson just says, yeah, they're, they're mint condition. I mean, if it's not too much of a bother. And Cap's like, yeah, no, it's not a bother. Yeah. Um, you know, just kind of... Uh, there's a little boxing around the edges, you know. <laughs> and then, of course, that turns into motivation, which itself is manipulation, but we'll get there later. I also love how awkward Coulson is around Captain America. Excuse me, around Captain Rogers. I love that. Because if, I've, if you've been paying attention throughout these ruminations, or indeed the films themselves, Coulson is just uh, cool as a cucumber. No issues. No problems. Yeah, no, he's completely got this. Thor, the Destroyer, um, magical storms, teleporting, the, you know, the Iron Man suit, the, the slinking thing. No, this is all normal. But he sees Rogers, and he's just like, hey, and he just comes across as awkward. As that kind of hero worshipy awkward that I'm sure most of you know what that feels like. I know what that feels like. I met Leonard Nimoy once, and I was a bumbling little idiot <laughs> because I was just like, oh my God, it's Leonard Nimoy. You know, I know, you know what I'm talking about. There's always that moment of hesitation, that moment of just kind of, oh, and you're not really sure what to say, and maybe I shouldn't say it. You know, it, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. And of course, Rogers handles it smoothly. Of course he does. He's very good with people. We'll talk more about that later, too. <sighs> so, <clears throat> Loki. Loki has his brief exposition scene with the other. I don't have much to say about it. It's good stuff. But I want to comment on a couple of things. First of all, they had the actor who plays the other, forgive me for not remembering his name, do a lot of things specifically to showcase that he's not quite normal humanoid. They didn't want to just have him being like this. That's what, that's what Loki's job is. No, he's like... You know. Um, and, of course, the double thumbs. Got to have the double thumbs. But what I find very interesting, and this is very telling on how the other and probably Thanos 
Thanos? God, I don't remember how they say it. Do the, do their business. Their business dealings. Loki flat out says to the other, I don't threaten. I don't threaten. I'm just stating fact. I've got the Tesseract and you don't. And the other says, okay. And then in the most direct and blatant way possible, directly threatens Loki. You notice that, right? It also kind of showcases a little bit of a difference in mentality between the two. Loki, for all of his overtness, is actually quite subtle and devious. He prefers to worm his way through an obstacle rather than smash through it when given the option. Which, again, makes me think that this entire invasion plan is actually Thanos' plan, not Loki's plan, because it's very not Loki. By contrast, it is very Thanos. What are you doing? We're just sending an infinite number of troops to Earth until we conquer it. Okay. <laughs> Why? Well, I mean, we. what else are you going to do? So, <clears throat> the helicarrier is awesome. I don't have much else to say about it, other than the fact that it's awesome and wildly impractical and incredibly impossible, but by God, it's a cool thing. You guys know I'm a bit of a ship person, and I have a special spot suit, a spot, <laughs> soft spot in my thoughts for airships in particular, so seeing the helicarrier was just kind of a yeah moment. They do some really good stuff with it. I also love the... So one of the things I want to mention is that they have a lot of personnel and a lot of resources and shield to an almost ridiculous extent, and they have access to a lot of things that maybe they probably shouldn't. Given what we learn later, how much of this do you think was basically on the direct behest of Hydra rather than S.H.I.E.L.D.? Because there's a lot of moments in this film that make a lot more sense going back through it, knowing that Hydra has infested S.H.I.E.L.D. to the point of, of proliferation. I also love the dynamic between Rogers and Banner. The two of them both are more comforted by different things, and thus their level of comfort tends to shift from scene to scene. Rogers, aircraft carrier, soldiers, personnel. Yeah, no, this is our old hat. And Banner's just like, oh, oh. there's even this little, tiny little bit, lots of little details, where he goes up and he tries to go up a staircase to like lean against the wall or whatever, and he looks up and there's a soldier there, and he just immediately turns around like, hmm. Obviously, Banner wouldn't be comfortable around soldiers, and obviously Rogers would. And, of course, the reverse goes true when we get to the techno babble kind of stuff that starts to happen after that, because, you know, he doesn't really know anything about that. And, of course, Rogers is very, very charismatic and very good with people, so he and Banner get along pretty much immediately. I want you to remember that, by the way. Rogers has been very charismatic with everyone in his movie and up to date. Don't worry, I'm going to get back to that point. So, and Fury. Fury is very, very polite and very accommodating with Banner. Don't worry. I'm very thankful for you for doing this. Sorry for pulling you out of your stuff. We'll let you go as soon as you're done. Sorry for all this. Here's your, here's your lab. We got all the toys. It'll be cool. Really need you. Then they find Loki. Now, I don't think anyone in the world saw Loki strutting about Stuttgart and said, Oh, man, he's, I can't believe we caught it. No, no, everyone saw that. Even in the theater, people were like, Oh, he, I, one of the viewings, it was in a side theater. You know, it was like, like my third or fourth theater viewing. Um, there's someone in the audience who was like, You idiot! <laughs> he wants to be found! And it's like, duh, of course he wants to be found. Loki, 
I think that's probably one of the few moments where Loki peeks his head out of the water, so to speak, and he's just like, I, <laughs> center stage, and I want to, I want the big finale. I want to beat all the Avengers and show them that I'm better than them. You know, that kind of a thing. And then we have a very unusual directorial choice. We have a fairly significant section of film where we just have the string quartet number 13 and all the rest of the title playing while Loki uh, rips a man's eyeball out, basically, to scan it for the thing, and Barton infiltrates, and, you know, a bunch of little stuff like that. It's a weird scene, and I don't really have much else to say about it. One of the things I do want to mention, though, I love pretty much everything about the scene as soon as Loki says, Neil! Now, Hiddleston's a great actor and a very subtle actor. He's very good with his face and he's very good with his words. Loki comes across as blah in that, in that initial scene. Neil! And I think that was on purpose. Because, well, that's not really Loki, is it? Again, that's more blunt. That's more overt. And... It is a tantrum from a child. I've heard the theory before, which I kind of saved for now, that Loki... I mentioned how he's slanted a little bit because of Thanos' influence or the Scepter's influence. One of the theories I've heard is that Loki is literally reverted. That he still has his memories, but that his emotional maturity and his mental capacity have both been degraded to the point where he is more or less literally a child. Not sure what I think about that, but I'm curious what you guys think as ever. So... There's the great scene, there will always be men like you. I don't have a German accent, forgive me. You know, from the American actor who says it, you know, there will always be men like you. I like that line. And I like how he still stands, even though it's going to get him killed. There's something about that that's just powerful. Maybe foolish, maybe stupid, but demonstrable nonetheless. And then Cap shows up. Pay attention to something, because I only noticed this like my seventh or so watching of this film. I've seen this film a lot. As soon as Captain Rogers touches down, all the people who are kneeling, like almost a dozen of them, just start to stand up now. Because it's okay, he's here. Now, some people I've heard have said, oh, it's because America's coming to save the day. I don't think that's it at all. I think it's because Rogers is Captain Rogers. He's the captain. He's the guy who has that charisma and that natural appeal and that leadership quality so that people see him and see and are comforted enough to be able to relax and stand. That's just my opinion on that. So <clears throat> then we have an interesting tidbit because Cap made the people calm down. Stark defeated Loki. Now, granted, we know Loki intended to be defeated, but it is interesting the contrast in the two's approach, isn't it? It's also the first scene where Stark and Captain Rogers meet each other. I mention this, though, because Captain Rogers is all about thinking things out, utilizing all your resources carefully, you know, leader, being a leader. Stark's approach is walking in and just overwhelming it with overwhelming technology and power. And the two are somewhat curt with each other from the very beginning and snipping at each other's heels. And I want you to keep that in mind, because I'll, I'll come back to that. So... You know, I'm not overly fond of what comes after. Thor comes down, and then, oh, oh, I'm sorry, pardon me. Oh, my neck. Thor, you know, takes Loki away. 
This is another excellent moment in which it becomes clear, in my opinion, that Loki is not Loki. What do you remember? I remember a shadow. I remember you tossing me into that abyss. Hang on, hang on. You remember what I talked about back in Thor, right? He didn't toss anything. Loki let go. Thor was desperately trying to reach him. Now, Odin arguably emotionally let go, and that's what caused Loki to physically let go, but Thor was like, no, no! Again, we see how events are being kind of skewed and perceived basically wrong. I really do think that this is another bit of evidence that his mind is legitimately being altered or affected here. Especially in a movie where we know that's a thing, because the scepter. Anywho. <clears throat> so then we have what is arguably the worst part of the film. Now don't mistake me. Thor and Iron Man are an interesting matchup. Thor has the defense and the strength. Iron Man has the mobility, the range, and the firepower. So it's an interesting matchup. But the two fight for what is effectively no reason. It's probably the one part of the film when I first saw Avengers in the cinema. Very first time, and I was just, and my interest level, which was pretty much peaked, like the whole film dipped. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Come on. Come on. Because I've seen this so many times. There's probably a trope for this. I don't know what it's called. It's when two superheroes, or three or eight or twelve, decide to fight each other for what is effectively no reason. It's the excuse fight, right? I mean, we see this in video games too, but it is all over the place in superhero comics. And I'm just like, oh, come on. However, I do have to point out something else. Thor is rather direct. While he has obtained a degree of wisdom, thanks to his film and humility, uh, he is very direct in his methods. Stark is very direct in his methods. And it is very interesting to me that the one who gets both of them to, to you know, stand down is Rogers. For two reasons, too. First, because Rogers was the one who was like, okay, that's enough. We're on the same side here. Let's, let's, there is no reason to basically fighting. And when Thor strikes him in a fit of anger, Rogers withstands it. Doesn't fight back. Doesn't shoot back, like Stark probably would have. He just reflects it and says, are we done here? Once again, showing that mindset. We, I love this, if I might be so bold. Because what I love most about the MCU's presentation of Captain Rogers is that he has ineffable leadership qualities, of which I've been already talking about many times, that make him the glue for the teams. He is not as strong, as smart, as resourceful, as durable, as quick, or basically as anything, as anyone. But he is the one who manages to pull the best out of all of them. If I was to relate this in a weird analogy, I would say Captain Rogers is a fantastic director and all the Avengers around him and all the team members around him are his actors, and he is able to pull the best possible performance out of them. My, my opinion. <sighs> Check my notes. I've been talking off my notes for a bit here. Give me a second. See if I missed anything. Um, oh, yeah. That's also the first scene we really see what vibranium can do on a large scale. I mean, that's Mjolnir. That is literally a magic hammer. Can't be lifted by anyone else. Flight. Channels lightning. Vibranium was able to deflect it, and the deflection, we see how much power was in that hammer because we see it devastate the forest. It's the first time we get the kind of scope and scale of Vibranium, and that will continue to be a trend throughout basically all of the MCU, up to and including Black Panther, which just came out a few months ago. So, And hopefully we'll be seeing that today, <laughs> your today, in Infinity War as well. <clears throat> so, then they capture Loki. The music... 
the sound design, the shots, the camera angles, and the glance at Banner all make it clear to the audience, this is not some great triumphant thing. Yes, we brought in Loki. Dun, da, da, da. No, 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 no. This is the doom moment. This is when thing, then we have the build-up to dread. Because, it, and I mention that because it's very obvious, even if you've never seen this film before, that this is all part of Loki's plan. That this is a build-up to it. And Stark flat-out calls that out, so does, Stark, uh, so does Rogers, almost immediately. He basically surrendered. Why? <sighs> um, there's also a tiny little note. It's literally just one line. But it helps to do a little bit of world-building. Thor mentions that the Chitari, excuse me, Chitari, are not from any world known. I point that out because Thor established that there are worlds beyond Earth with habitable, habitable sentient sapient life on them. This is now planting the seed that there is something even beyond the realm of, of, the, of the Nine Realms, of, of Thor. And I point that out because if you remember, I posited that idea that the Asgardian realms were basically a sector. Like, this is this sector of space. And thus, they have access and connections, magically or technology or whatever you want to think of it, within this realm. And then there's the rest of the galaxy. And Guardians of the Galaxy will give us our first real peek into that later on, but that's obviously later. So, and yeah, Stark reaches out to Coulson. I kind of already mentioned that. But it's wonderful to see it. I have described Stark as a monomaniac character, and I have used that phrase a bit over the last couple of years. Every time I do, someone says, what does that mean? Let me explain a little bit. Monomaniac means any time, it's very difficult for something to get your attention, to really grab your attention. And when I say grab your attention, I don't mean like, oh, there's a tree across the, the, the realm. No, I mean like, oh my god, that's a, that's a bonsai tree with, with, with pink flowers and it's beautiful, you know, something that will really grab your attention. So it's difficult for that to happen. And then you become rather fixated upon it. Stark has this all over the place. Whatever manages to pierce that veil, he spends a lot of time and effort on it. And of course that's important because it now means Coulson is more important to Stark than he previously was. <sighs> um. <laughs> Galaga, that was actually an ad lib. That man's playing Galaga. They they did a liter they later on filmed a scene with the guy playing Galaga just because they loved the ad lib that much. So the dynamic between the actual Avengers, basically, this is now the scene where all the Avengers are assembled for the first time. And there is an interesting interplay of dynamic between everyone. Stark and Banner, they gel smoothly and perfectly. Cap and Banner, they gel smoothly and perfectly. A lot of respect, mutual respect. You know, I'm the soldier, you're the scientist. I respect your science, you respect my capacity. You know, there's a lot of mutual respect between Romanov and Banner. There's, well, okay, Banner and Romanov, let me put it that direction. Um, uh, Stark and Thor, no, no hard feelings. Cap and Thor, no hard feelings. Everyone gels with each other pretty well, and it's funny to see that. Because the one exception to that is Stark and Rogers. The two bounce off of each other constantly. Now, I like that a lot. While everyone else has fairly natural dynamic chemistry with each other, Rogers and Stark have to earn it. They become friends over the next, like, four films. And it doesn't even, it, it begins here in Avengers, but it doesn't even conclude in Avengers, nor should it. What they have is something a little bit stronger, a little bit deeper, and a little bit more real. A true, genuine friendship. 
that will slowly develop as a result of mutual admiration and respect for each other. But you might be asking, well, hang on. If they both keep bouncing off, if there's that mutual antagonizement there, why do they grow into friends? And why is that antagonizement to begin with? Why? I mean, it's, a, it's the scientist and the soldier thing again, right? I mean, and I could give you a piece of paper and say, okay, humble, show off, you know, um, uh, shy, likes to be center of attention. I could show you how the two character points kind of bound, you know, are opposites, but that's actually not what it is. It is what is so similar between Rogers and Stark that really makes their character dynamic because they are both very charismatic and they're both natural leaders in their own way. Now, Stark is a different type of leadership. I've already talked about that. Back in Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2, we see how Stark slowly learns to become a more of a, a leader, more of a coordinator, than someone who just walks in and gets the job done. He's still on that path, but he has that natural charisma to attract people to him and to get people to go in a certain direction. Rogers has the exact same thing, just presented differently. He has that natural charisma and that natural adaptability. Oh yeah, that's another thing. The two of them also make a wonderful team when they actually team up together because Stark is brilliantly intelligent and, and Rogers is brilliantly adaptable and has good instincts. Probably this is best shown when the two of them decide to, separately and independent of each other, go figure out what S.H.I.E.L.D. is up to, and basically both figure it out at the same time using their own different methods. Stark using his intellect and his ability to magician his way through things. A quick aside, when I say magician, the whole point of being a magician is to distract you with something big and flashy while I'm doing something more subtle down here so you don't notice it. He's very good at that. So Stark, or excuse me, Rogers, I'm actually getting confused now, Rogers goes off, breaks in, finds the Hydra weapons, and smashes them down. Sorry, the computer's going a little slow for me. But they both got results. <clears throat> I want you to pay attention to a thing. Oh yeah, actually, there's another thing. So, sorry. So then there's a nice, great human scene between Stark and Banner. Again, very natural chemistry, you know, not, not much to add to that. But what I find interesting is that the entire film, and I haven't really called attention to this until now, Banner resists saying the word Hulk. He ha this is the first time he says the word Hulk is in this scene, where he slips for a moment. He says, you mean the Hulk, the other guy? And he just kind of says it in a different way. It'll take, <laughs> it'll take him a little bit to really acknowledge and accept the Hulk as being a part of him as well, his own character arc, which hopefully we'll see more of in Infinity War today. Yay! I'm sorry, I'm a little excited. It's actually still a couple of weeks out for me, but I'm still kind of pumped, you know? Yeah. Um, but also, I love it because he flat, Stark flat out gives the idea, you know, you're going you're gonna to be suiting up with the rest of us. Because Stark, for all of his weird character traits, is also an idealist. But I'll get more to that later. Now, I want you to pay attention, if you're watching this or watching this for the first time, I want you to pay attention to Thor's speech about bilge snipe. You know, we, I, I, why are we coming in and messing up your stuff? You're better off without us, blah, blah, blah. He's very humble, he's very wise, and he's very considerate of others. I want you to remember that, okay? Because it's my biggest point of evidence for something that I argued for, like, six months. <laughs> and then... Fury comes over, and he's like, Loki's your prisoner. Oh, yeah, why is, why is it I keep getting the feeling he's the only person who actually wants to be on this ship? Well, of course, because he does. And then we see the scene between Widow and Loki. 
Romanoff and Loki. And what's funny is this scene might not have had the same power if we hadn't seen her uh, her talents established. Remember, in Iron Man 2, it was very well established that she was the kind of person who would present things, truthful things, in, but the, but what she was presenting wasn't really important. It was how she was presenting it so that she can then observe your reaction to how she is presenting this information. And then she could glean and deduce what she needs to from that. She was very good at that in Iron Man 2, and she's brilliant at it in this film as well. She... The most powerful and difficult to avoid manipulations are the ones that are grounded in truth. The ability to tell someone to their face the truth in a way that will encourage them on a, on a direction or path that you want them to. It's very hard to outmaneuver that, especially if you know it's the truth. She comes to him and tells the truth, and he believes her because it is the truth. She actually, in many ways, bears her soul to him. Now, that's very important because I have this little private theory that it's one of the first times that Widow... That, excuse me. No, no, I'm going to say it that way. I think that's appropriate. That the widow has borne her soul to anybody. She obviously has a great deal of connection to Barton. Um, that's something that's mentioned several, several times. How, she, how the only thing that brings her in when she's on, on mission is that Barton was compromised. The fact that she's like, is, you know, we've lost one of our own to Loki. Um, we're not sure what, you know, is Barton alive? Is he okay? And of course, later on, there's going to be a scene which we'll get to when we get there. Well, I'll, I'll just tell about it now. It's the scene right after Hulk damages her, and she's just huddled, shaking from both a combination of fear and the adrenaline that's keeping because of her wounds. And the and she's just been sitting there for several minutes at this point, completely in shock, until Barton's name comes up. That's what gets her to move. So obviously, she has a great deal of significant connection to him. By the way, I like her response to Loki. Love is for children. I owe him a debt. Wonderfully pragmatic. So the widow bears her soul to Loki. And in response, he savagely attacks her because she just opened herself up to be emotionally vulnerable to him. Naturally, that's the truth. And now she gets him to open up to her because she has legitimately opened up to him. And he is now attacking her in his own you know, particular idiom, which then gets him to admit the truth. The only, the only catch here is the fact that the big secret is that its banner doesn't play through. I feel like there was a rewrite somewhere here, because anybody with a brain could say, oh yeah, it's about banner. He's here for the Hulk. I mean, duh, right? <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> so. <sighs> um, oh yeah. There's this great thing where he's, Loki's giving this speech to her, forgive me. And as he's speechifying, we see the Hydra weapons. We see the secret files they're detecting. We see the, the, the virus that's helping take over the ship. Blah, 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 blah. Um, I, love, I love the use of visual cinematography throughout this whole scene to help emphasize the points. I also notice Whedon has this thing to do a lot of shots in reflection. He does this many, many times throughout the film, but there's this bit where we actually see Loki's reflection on her, which is, of course, very funny, because she is being the real person, what we're seeing is a reflection of Loki. <laughs> Anyways. <clears throat> and then she walks away. Oh, okay, thank you. And Loki's just like, what? Doesn't even realize. Doesn't even realize he just got played. Takes a lot to play Loki. That's, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> so... What is Phase 2? I love it. I love it because the team manages to completely out... You know, Fury's, like, trying to regrain ground. He doesn't backpedal. He doesn't, like... He just 
he very smoothly shifts from like think of it like layers. Nick Fury is an ogre, guys. Think of it as layers. The outer layer is like the, the the complete lie. It's like, okay, well, they found out that that's a complete lie, so we'll shift down to the second thing, which is mostly lies. And if they find out that, we'll go down to, like, partial lies. It takes a while to get Nick Fury to admit the truth. He does admit the truth. He finally points to Thor. It's because of him. We are hilariously outgunned in the universe. And that's true. And someone should do something about that. But you see the wonderful irony of the situation, because we just saw a scene where someone used the truth to manipulate someone to where they wanted them to be. Now, this is probably giving this film too much credit, but I can't help but point out the wonderful symmetry of this. Because S.H.I.E.L.D. and the idealistic people of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the so-called heroes and scientists and other people who believe in actually doing good have effectively been manipulating into an armament program of incredible scale and scope to the to the level that would cause significant damage if it were to happen to fall into the wrong hands, like nuking Manhattan, in the because of a truth, because of a true statement and true information that was given to them in just such a way. So then they start arguing. And you'll notice the Dutch angle kind of drifts its way into the scenes. Now, the Dutch angle is almost universally used to demonstrate that something is mentally or emotionally off-kilter, that this is wrong or an illusion or whatever. Now, I point that out. <laughs> I mentioned I'd argued something for six months. For the longest time, I, I can't believe I'm saying this because, you know, it's been like ten years since this film came out. Actually, it hasn't been ten years, has it? I, uh, six years? Has it been six years since Avengers came out? I don't remember when Avengers came out. It's been a while. It's been a damn long while. It has to have been a while because... I'm sorry, I'm getting off track. Point being that for a long time, for about six months after this film came out, I had uh, discussions and arguments with several of my friends and and, and uh, people I talked to my family about the fact that they were just like, oh man, the Avengers really are just a bunch of kids, right? And I'm like, no, they were being manipulated. No, they weren't. I'm I'm sorry, going back through this with analysis mode on, and the fact that we know the Mind Stone was in the Scepter now, I have no doubt whatsoever they were being manipulated. The Dutch Angle just kind of seals it. I, I don't think I even noticed the Dutch Angle before. But I point you to that speech earlier about Thor. Gutter Snipe, right? Or not, uh, Bilge Snipe, excuse me, Bilge Snipe. Notice his humility and his uh, compassion and his wisdom in that scene. And then j skip forward a few minutes... And where he talks about that, and he actually flat out says, You people are so petty and tiny. That's not Thor. That's Thor on the scepter. And it's very important to note that because that is the biggest point of evidence by far from my belief that Loki is on the scepter. That that's not really Loki. Because we see what each of these characters are like on the scepter. The most important ones are Banner, who just kind of goes livid and is actually legitimately angry. And I don't mean like, rah! I mean that kind of cold fury that he gets across. We see Captain America, who is dismissive and uh, standoffish. We see Stark and his constant... He, he goes from witticisms and light, you know, kind of lighthearted joking to actually malevolent jibing at people, trying to jab at their, uh, their self-esteem to break them down. And, of course, we see Thor, who goes from, you know, humility and, and, and understanding to, you're pathetic and beneath me. Think about that. 
So, I also want to point out something. What I love is the way Stark insults Rogers and the way Rogers insults Stark, because both of them are completely wrong and have already been proven wrong if we've already seen these films. Rogers says, you only fight for yourself and all you are is your suit. And yet both of those statements are wrong. Stark is more than capable of doing many things outside of that suit and has been very brave and courageous in his desire to help others. And then Stark says about Rogers, you're nothing. You're just some random kid. Everything that was important about you came out of a bottle. And yet, that is incredibly wrong. The only reason I, Captain Rogers is Captain Rogers is because before he took the serum, he was still that good, kind-hearted, simple, old-fashioned kid. That Captain Rogers was able to be the kind of person to lay himself on that grenade, to think his way around his situations, and to be adaptive enough to be a good soldier and a good charismatic leader, regardless of the fact that he has big muscles. So, then the attack hits. There's this great little bit. I just want to comment on this really quick. Fury, they do several things to emphasize that the leadership of S.H.I.E.L.D. has competency. And one of those is when, when S.H.I.E.L.D. is like, is the sun still up? Oh, uh, yeah. Then put it on the left. <laughs> I love that. Um, <clears throat> so, oh, I'm sorry. There's actually one other bit I want to comment. There's a line I want to talk about. It's Banner's. No, you, 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 know, you rented out my room. That was a, no, 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 you put it in there to kill me, but you can't. Believe me, I tried. I got low. Put in a bad way, so I put a bullet in my mouth, and the other guy spit it out. They don't need to show us that scene, because everything about the way he says that and what, and what he's talking about is absolutely chilling. Holy crap. I can only imagine. I just wanted to comment on that, because it's a very powerful scene for me. So notice the Hulk, one hour, 14 minutes. That's the first time the Hulk shows up. I'm reminded of Jaws and the T-Rex that we'll be talking about later this uh, in the next month about Jurassic Park because they don't reveal the Hulk until an hour and 14 into this film. It's a long film. And notice the, the transformation is very slow and very painful. Now, I have a personal theory about that, and several of my friends had the same theory. The idea here is that Hulk is, I should say, Banner, is actually resisting the transformation. That he is, this is an unwilling transformation, that he is not wanting to turn into the Hulk. And that's why it's so slow, and that's why it's so painful. In contrast to the later one, when he is in complete control of himself, which I'll talk about a little bit more when we get there. But I want to point this out, because the scene does a great job of impressing just how absolutely terrifying the Hulk really is. And we see this through Romanov's eyes, of course. The one person who understands and, and is already terrified of this thing now has to personally face it. And she gets desperate. It's the only time in the whole film that she loses her cool completely. There's a, you know, usually she's got this whole uh, thing, and she might speak quickly, or she might speak casually, but, you know, there's this sort of flippancy competency that gets across in her tone, and everything she says, except when she's trying to talk to Banner, God, Banner, please, I, I promise you, we're going to get out of this, I swear on my life, and her tone is breaking because she has lost it. She understands what she's looking at. She's looking at the most terrifying thing she can imagine, a thinking, sentient being she can do nothing about except for run in terror from. And notice that when the camera goes to him, he is quite literally shaking with rage. 
That's terrifying. And it's really impressive how they managed to make the Hulk goddamned terrifying. Um, so, you know, and then, so he destroys the crap out of everything. The dynamics shift almost immediately. Stark and Rogers are immediately like, oh, God, get on the suit, get on the suit. Okay, yeah, and they start working together cleanly and smoothly because now we're actually seeing the real people without the Scepter's influence, and we kind of see how they start to gel. When the, when the stakes are real, when it's no longer just us chatting in the office, and, oh, God, we got to save these people, bam. There's no more questions. It's just coordination. Um, and, of course, as I mentioned, Hulk and Romanov, and then Thor and the Hulk, which is a great fight scene overall. Um, but kind of goes to show just how the Hulk really is someone they just have nothing they can do about. It's actually funny. Uh, it is Fury who has a solution for the Hulk. Get his attention away from the helicarrier. Get him off the helicarrier. Um, we may have lost a plane in the process, but at least we got him off the helicarrier, right? And uh, and, and you know, we see Hill, very competent. We see Fury, very competent. I'm not going to add much else to that. Uh, this is the scene where uh, the injured Romanov is literally shaking from adrenaline and shock. She finally gets up to go after Barton. I'm going to skip forward a little bit here because I want to talk about S.H.I.E.L.D., the show. Now, I'm not saying whether I like or dislike S.H.I.E.L.D. because that's not relevant. I don't even want that to be brought into this discussion. But I do have to say that as much as I like Coulson and I like the fact that Coulson is in the show, I really don't like the fact that they brought him back from the dead. Now, for a long time, several of my friends had a theory that he, had, he hadn't actually died on the helicarrier, that he had you know, lapsed into shock or whatever, and that Fury, being Fury, had manipulated the situation to have him pulled away into the medics to be taken care of so he could be resuscitated, but not told anyone so that they would presume he died. We know there's something else that actually happened. I'm not going to spoil the show here because that's not my point. Um... So it's kind of one of those weird things. I like Coulson. I like seeing more of him. But at the same time, he probably should have stayed dead. He has a wonderful line to Loki. Uh, it's actually a series of lines. You know, you, you, you're going to lose. It's in your nature. <laughs> Where are my disadvantages? You lack conviction. And then he shoots him. Now, first of all, that is very Coulson. Even in death, he was never really bothered by Loki. That's He can handle this. My interpretation of what Coulson meant was that it's easy to win when you have all the cards. If you are playing poker, then you have a royal flush in your hand. Everything else basically doesn't matter at that point. You have won. You have won the hand. That's easy. That's a joke. Anybody could do that. My niece could do that. It's a lot harder to win when you've got ace high, you know? When you've got a pair of eights. He presents the idea that Loki, for all of his so-called advantages, is lacking in anything that will make him be capable of withstanding anything real, any real opposition, and the fact that he is basically inferior to his opponents. Because opponents are going to defeat him with much less going for them. And he's going to lose with much more going for him. And I love the fact... I, I teared up. I'm going, to, I'm going to be completely honest. I teared up over the following scenes. Pretty much the moment from when, when Coulson dies up to them, you know, up to the conclusion of the, of the dark portion of the film 
is my favorite scene in the film. It's a significant scene. It's like 10 minutes of footage, and it's like seven scenes, but oh my god. I, I just, on my notes here, I just have Coulson underlined three times. His final words are, this was never going to work if they didn't have something to... And then he can't finish his sentence. <laughs> it's funny that even in death, Coulson understands the job. The movie goes very quiet at this point. Not just musically or in terms of sound, but in terms of thematics. It, everything just kind of pulls right down into this point where the audience can kind of catch a breath. Wow, it's, it's getting to me again. Because the whole point of these scenes is that there was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if they could work together when we needed them to. To fight the battles that we never could. Coulson died believing in heroes, and that is the truth. It is thus funny in its own horrible way that we managed to take those cards and turn them into something real. Now, they were in the locker, not on his jacket. But it's all about the push. It's all about presenting the truth in a certain way. That's a very predominant theme in this film. Because Fury is telling them the truth. Coulson died believing in heroes. Believing in that ideal. That idealism. That in this dark and unpleasant and pragmatic and mundane world, he believed in the concept that there were individuals who could rise up and actually accomplish something, God damn it, whether they had superpowers or not. And you notice just how much that gets to Stark. Props to Robert Downey Jr. He does a perfect job of portraying Stark, completely shutting down emotionally. He had just started reaching out to this guy. He had just started accepting Coulson into that. His, you remember I talked about the Iron Man 1 and Iron Man 2. He has his own little, his safety, I forget what I called it because I, I did the video like a week ago, but he has his own little family circle and the people he trusts. It's a very small group. He's got, he's got uh, Rodney in there. He's got Potts in there. He had, uh, oh, God, oh God, I can't think of his name. <laughs> the Ironmonger in there, you know. He had those people in there. He was pulling Coulson into that circle, into that family unit, and then he died. And it hits him like a ton of, like a truck filled with a ton of bricks. <sighs> Barton talks to Widow in a great scene in this moment, and they talk about brainwashing and how much she would know about that. Now, at this point in time, we don't know about her whole conditioning and programming that allows her to be what she is. Um, but this is our first real hint of that. And this is where we see her character arc really start to come into its own, where she becomes an Avenger rather than Agent Widow. Because she is a woman without any real purpose. She was willing to do whatever jobs. It didn't mean anything to her. It was just her job. S.H.I.E.L.D. decided to employ her, so she started doing her job for another per person. It didn't matter. She was just loyal to a different flag now. What's the difference? But she started to see people and individuals and circumstances which are changing her mind. And she sees, in her own words, monsters and magic. This is beyond her. This is beyond them. But by God, we see in this moment that she really was being completely honest. Well, completely truthful with Loki. She has read in her ledger. And God damn it, she wants that gone. 
She wants to be a good person rather than the widow. And of course, Barton's like, oh, I, I guess I'd feel a little better if I put an arrow through Loki's eye. It'd help me sleep better at night. <laughs> what we see next is the first scene that really shows Tony Stark's mental and emotional breakdown. Now, it doesn't really conclude here, even though he effectively commits suicide. No. Um, it will actually be a major plot point of Iron Man 3. But this is where it's established. It's not about the attack. It's not about the Chitar. It's not about going to space. As he's standing there, you know, Rogers says, he was a good man. And what does Stark say? He was an idiot. He was out of his league. He should have waited. He should have... And he just trails off because he doesn't have anything else to add to that. Now, that's a powerful scene in its own right. And his thing, we are not soldiers. You can see how much this is really affecting him. This is not an idle issue. This is not him being flippant. And yet, I want to share a private theory with you. And I've had this theory for many years. Replace the target of Stark's discussion with Stark himself. So, in other words, let me read these lines again, as if he was talking about himself. I was an idiot. I was out of my league. I should have waited. I should have... Now, that is purely a theory, but considering Iron Man 1 and 2 and especially considering 3, I think that slides in rather neatly. Oh, also considering Civil War, which is, again, a very important part of Stark's arc. Arc, excuse me. So, Cap goes and get Romanoff and Barton. Son, just, just don't. Um, Stark confronts Loki. Loki is, of course, amused and kind of curious why Stark is approaching him without the suit. So, yeah, okay. What I love about this is Stark... Stark is probably one of the few people who manipulate someone by actually lying to them. It's like, no, no, I'm, I'm not here to... Uh, stalling won't work. Oh, no, threatening. I'm threatening you. Remember, this is a threat. But he is actually stalling him. He's stalling him so he can get his suit on. And by what is effectively lucky fortune stance... Fortune stance? It's a new word. I just made it up. Deal with it. Drop the mic. By lucky happenstance, or fortune the arc reactor manages to disp dispel the energies of the Mind Stone so that it can't actually mind control Stark. Which is good, because phew, that would have been the end of that plan, wouldn't it have? <laughs> so, then he comes up. First of all, the Mark VII. Glorious suit. Probably my personal favorite Iron Man suit right there. And he says, oh yeah, there's one other person you pissed off. His name was Phil. Powerful moment and very awesome moment. And then we get to the battle scene. Now, as usual, I don't have a lot to say about a battle scene. It's very competent. Uh, one of the things that I think that is done very correctly in the in the uh, creation of this battle scene is the tempo of it is first we see everyone playing to their strengths. Everyone does something they're good at, and we get to see them shine. Then, you know, we've got... Uh, We've got providing covering fire. We've got coordinating the others. The leadership of Captain America. Very big moment of this of this whole scene. We've got the big guns from both Thor and from uh, Stark. And Stark himself providing the eyes in the sky. Along with Burton, who is able to give literal recon as he's up there shooting. So all of them are playing to their strengths. We get to see the value of that teamwork. Because none of these guys individually are really that impressive on a large scale. 
But as a group, we have a hell of a death ball, don't we? So we see the strengths of them. We see the, the, the skill set. And then things start to go a little bit badly. And then we see them start to coordinate. And then we start to see them seriously kicking ass because when, the, when two, it, it, like it hops between, it's like these two and then these two. I, I, I wrote down a few of them. Uh, you know, there's uh, Stark and Widow, and then Stark and Captain, and then Thor and Hulk, and then Romanov and Burton. It's just link, link up, link up, link up, link up. And each time they manage to just crush whatever's in their way. And it just kind of slides in like poetry because we get to see that sort of teamwork really in action. It's basically the exact opposite of the old cliche where bad guys will attack the good guy one at a time. Here, the good guys are attacking more than once at a time, and it's working out very well for them. Go figure. Also, I want to draw attention to a very small scene. There's this one little tiny moment where Thor is trying to convince Loki to end this. And Loki cries. This was the original bit of evidence that I had that this was not really Loki. That that was a bit of Loki peeking out of the water, so to speak. And he mentions that sentimentality thing. He said that like three times so far. Um, so, you know, the battle, uh, Hawkeye's amazing. Uh, one of the actor's biggest complaints was that Hawkeye, that, excuse me, that is Agent Burton, was a bad guy for like the whole film. But he's still very competent. He managed to show his chops wonderfully. I'm really glad we got to see more of him in the future. I hope we get to see more of him today in Infinity War because I do like Hawkeye a lot in the MCU. And um, that situational awareness thing, everyone gets a moment, it's awesome. Banner shows up on the motorcycle. Uh, it makes sense that Banner would know where the battle is. Remember, he actually he was the only person who saw the display saying where the energy was coming from before everything went to hell. So he actually does know where to go. Go figure. But uh, then there's then there's the scene where he's always angry because that's the really interesting thing about emotions, isn't it? This is very true for most people. Obviously, everyone's different to some degree or another. But the more you fight your emotions, the more you bottle them up, the more you contain them, the more they are out of your control. Banner has retained control over himself by allowing and acknowledging his anger, by working through it, by admitting it, and in so doing, allowing himself to emotionally mature to the point where anger is not the thing that sets him off. And it's a wonderful little quiet moment. It's actually funny because some years later there would be a film called Inside Out, which would actually effectively carry the same general message with regards to sorrow specifically rather than anger. It's very subtle, lovely stuff. And of course then Hulk is a badass, and we get a lot of more badass scenes. I also love, there's a quiet little acknowledgement of how much respect Cap, excuse me, Stark, really has for Cap. Captain, call it. And that's all it is. It's not drawn out. It's not emphasized. It's just, Captain, call it. What do you want us to do? And, and, start, and, and Rogers, being Captain America, says, all right, I want you to go there, I want you to go there. You work on this, eyes in the sky, you deal with this, we keep him right here, and Hulk... Smash. Awesome. Awesome stuff. So then the council is evil. <laughs> A new kind of civilian populace. <laughs> wow. 
I mean, in hindsight, yeah, okay, this makes a lot more sense because they're Hydra. Yeah, okay, they're Hydra. It's actually funny. A lot of people theorize that the next big bad guys of the MCU would be the Council. Seriously, I know a lot of people who theorized that at the time. I guess they never really came in except for the brief thing in uh, Winter Soldier. But yeah, nuking a civilian populace for the possibility of maybe containing an alien invasion is... Uh, that's not pragmatism. That's jumping the gun. That's what that is. So, I want to bring your attention to one thing, because then there's another beat in the combat where everyone kind of starts to get broken down. Stark's suit is barely coming, is barely keeping going. He's almost run out of power. Uh, Burton is out of ammo. Uh, Cap Captain America, he's horribly injured, barely keeping going. Romanoff, she's losing stamina. Thor, he's running out. And of course, even Hulk, I, I, I stopped to count. It's 26 different guys are shooting Hulk. And just this is what we see in the one shot. There's actually more than that, so it's probably like 50-ish people all shooting Hulk at the same time. Guys, you've played RPGs. It doesn't matter how strong you are. After a certain point, you just start to run out of HP, right? And I like that because it establishes the Chitari as a threat without being a world-ending threat. Because what they have over the Avengers is numbers. As long as each one of them gets one hit off on the Avengers, they will eventually overwhelm them. This is actually very interesting to me because, at least from the trailers so far, this seems to be in contrast to Thanos' own modus operandi where Thanos, the individual, will be able to overwhelm the Avengers. Although, again, that's going purely off of trailer flicks, because obviously I haven't seen the film yet, so I just wanted to comment on it, because that occurred to me as I was watching it. I also, uh... I also love... I, I can't let it go by without comment. Puny God. Smash, 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 smash. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I don't have anything else to add to it. You know, Hiddleston told them not to tell him when they were yanking him, so his surprise would seem genuine, because it was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> let me ask you something. What kind of man is Nick Fury? We haven't talked a lot about him. We've seen him be competent. We've seen him know how to work his way through a situation. He knows how to lie, and he knows how to tell the truth. But I'll tell you what kind of man Nick Fury is. Because I already did. I said it right at the beginning. He is an idealist in the real world. Nick Fury is the kind of guy who will shoot his own soldier to prevent a massacre. I know that's a tiny little moment, but it's a badass moment. And it really helps to establish what kind of person he really is. It probably says something that a lot of people on that the, the, the bridge of, of the helicarrier cheer when their own guy fails to nuke that area. Yeah. And then Stark lays on the grenade. Back in Captain America, there's a scene where Rogers, Steve Rogers, grenade, live grenade, and gets on it to make sure that nobody gets hurt by it. Because while that may not be the correct thing to do, that's just his automatic instinct. It's when you lay down on a mine so that other people can crawl over you, right? Well, Stark's not like that. I'd rather just disarm the mine. Sometimes there's no other solution, though. Sometimes there's no other way around that. And so Stark takes that missile, and he lays on the mine. He puts himself down on the grenade so nobody else will get hit by it, and he takes it out into frickin' space, up into what I can only assume is nearby Sanctuary. We don't actually see Sanctuary there, just the ship, so I'm not, I'm not actually sure what that is. And <laughs> there's this wonderful bit 
it's it's very apropos. Excuse me, I'm getting a little emotional about this, because Stark, who again is a very sacrificing and heroic person, he, you know, he's, he's uh, does this, and Jarvis, Jarvis is Jarvis. Jarvis is amazing. Jarvis has always been amazing, but he also knows Stark very well. And so as he's going along, Jarvis says in an almost tentative tone, Sir, shall I put Miss Potts on the phone? And Stark just like hesitates. There's like this little twitch, and he's like, yeah, why not? She doesn't pick up. She is so distraught watching the television with news of this, knowing that he's involved and terrified for his safety. So she, she because of her own fear, doesn't notice him, which is not only poetic in its own right, but the real point of it is that because of the way his thing works, and it's been shown this to work this way like several times throughout the film, so this is established beforehand, it means as he's flying up to space, the last thing he sees on his display is her face. And then the power winks out. Yeah. So, I don't have much to say about the conclusion here. Obviously, a lot of work is being done to lay bricks for what would become the MCU in Phase 2. Some of these bricks will be taken up and carried forward, some not so much, um, and some successful and some not. Phase 2 was, was kind of a hit-or-miss phase, and there are behind-the-scenes reasons for that, which I've discussed in my show before. I'm not going to get into that now. Uh, I do want to mention, though, that I love a tiny little detail that I didn't notice until like my eighth time watching this film. Maybe sixth. Maybe sixth. Loki's like, if it's all the same to you, I think I'll take that drink now. Stark actually grins at that. He's like, ha, yeah, okay. It's a tiny little detail. I find myself thinking maybe that's the first moment that that's actually Loki. Like fully Loki, I suppose I should say, as opposed to the skewed or slanted Loki. That's just my opinion. I'm not actually sure. Regardless, we see a nice little montage, a few hints of what's to come. The heroes should be held responsible for this destruction. This was their fight. They should pay for this. Now, that is incredibly stupid of a mindset, and better discussed later in Civil War, because it is immensely stupid. Realistic. I think politicians are idiots, after all. But uh, still very, very, very stupid. And it's very easy to explain why. <clears throat> I want you to imagine for a moment that the heroes weren't there at all. That they went to Aruba. Chilling by the beach. Or not Aruba. Uh, Malibu. We'll go with Malibu. That's a, that's a terrible place. They go to Maui, okay? They go to Maui sipping their mojitos or whatever the hell they want to drink. All that devastation still happens, right? The heroes being present does not destroy the city. The villains attacking destroys the city. But, oh, we're going to hold the heroes responsible because they were the ones there, right? I could discuss that more, but it's not really the purview of this film. I just wanted to mention how dumb that is. And we see, once again, the characters kind of locking into teams. Thor and Loki, which will be relevant in the future, and I really hope will come through in Infinity War. Um, Banner and Stark, Romanov and Burton, and I really like how... And Rogers is alone, which is very apropos. I really like how the idea is that Fury has once again managed to use the truth to manipulate his way through a situation. It's the final instance of that, because he uses that on the Council. Where's the Tesseract? Oh, you're not getting that back. Are you kidding me? I don't trust you with that for a second. I'm sorry, what? But that's not, of course, what he says. He says the truth. Oh, it went back where it's supposed to go. I, did, I, I didn't make that decision. I just didn't argue with the guy who did. What about them? Oh, don't worry. They've sent a message that we're ready now, that we can actually deal with it, that we 
can actually defend ourselves. All worlds know that, and I will find it very interesting to know today whether or not that is true, if we really can handle ourselves against the greater galaxy. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been a treat and a joy going back through the MCU Phase 1. Thank you very, very much to all my patrons who both suggested this and voted for this. I appreciate your time and attention, and I will be seeing you guys next time.